series on Created for His Glory, the reality of God's supremacy. How does that affect us in our everyday lives? How should that affect us? What does that do when God's glory is not our primary and exclusive aim? We'll talk about that this evening. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Before we go there, let's say a word of prayer to open us up uh, this evening in God's word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you for the wondrous opportunity that we have to study your word. I pray that it would be an encouragement and a blessing tonight. Father, work in my heart. Continue the work that you've already begun. And Lord, as we study the truths of your holy, precious word, I pray that, Lord, you would be exalted and glorified. I thank you what a marvelous Savior you are. Help me as I preach your word truly bring you the glory that only you deserve. I love you and thank you. What a marvelous Savior you are. In your precious name I pray. Amen. It's tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 18, I'd like to uh, look at this, particularly, let's look at verse 15. i start off the context here. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace uh, might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the what? The glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are what? Temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, again, the reality of God's supremacy I want to think about this idea oftentimes that has come into the minds of so many Christians. I remember back when I was in high school, one of my classes I had with one of my teachers, we would study ancient Roman mythology and Greece, Greek as well. And as I look back, the thinking about this idea that uh, this mythology of the pagans, the, those who do not love God, they would, this mythology in their minds would propose a logical supernatural reason for life's events. For instance, such a particular God uh, uh, would be responsible over certain elements of this world. Uh, they never knew where they stood with the gods, and they hoped the gods weren't watching them. Now, as we think about this, they reflected on their weather, particularly, uh, and personal trials, national difficulties, all of these certain things, and uh, they would seem to focus on them. And it seemed logical, yet very supernatural to them, to reason their life in light of these particular gods, which we know from Christianity in the Bible, these are devils, demons. But they're putting their faith... And much like we see even around us, in the belief of spirits. A grieving Roman father in that time might have reasoned, since the weather was bad on the ocean, and my son's ship was lost, it must have been because Neptune was angry. Now, Neptune was the Roman god of the sea. And so they would seek for supernatural explanations for physical phenomena that they could see with their eyes and experience. It eventually became a body of accumulated folklore uh, governed, and this is what governed their understanding of the gods. There was nothing concrete. They believed the doctrines of devils. The ancient Romans were always fearful because they never knew where they stand before the gods. How fearful would that be 
If the day in and day out, we don't know where you're going to be. You don't know uh, if this bad thing's going to happen. Have I made this God happy? But maybe I made this God angry. Uh, and all of these things that might have been in the minds of a pagan person there in Rome. The gods were so unpredictable as they reasoned. Now, obviously, again, uh, I'm, I'm only talking from their perspective, not in light of the Scripture. I know that that thinking is demonic and it's wrong. If they antagonized a God from their mindset uh, and they were in a bad mood, they would face great troubles. They're very, this whole idea of the superstition is reasoning that there's some higher power other than God that is going to stipulate my life. And there was no such thing as permanent favor with a God. You had to continue to do to appease the God's from their mindset, again, very pagan, very idolatrous, and this is what Israel put themselves in. They remove themselves from a God who is known, from a God who is faithful, from a God with whom they had the truth of His Word to an unknown God. And these gods, as they reasoned, the Romans, they could range in front, you know, the people could cower in fear. Or they could just boldly disregard, well, this is a powerless God, I don't really need to worry about him. He is a God, but I don't really need to worry about him. And so there's so much variability in these particular gods as they surmise and as they uh, illogically and unbiblically reasoned. But they did understand that there is a supernatural world which interferes with the physical world. Now, the, these mortals, these Romans, were never content you know, they, they just, in the contentedness of a Roman was, I want the gods to leave me alone and let me live life my way under my circumstances. Again, totally divorced from an understanding of God and their own personal destinies. Again, maybe the, you know, oftentimes you might hear in the day, hopefully the stars, you know, align and, and go forth. Well, again, there, there's, a, there's a reasoning in mind that there's, in a very unbiblical, demonic way, that the, the, somehow these stars have some power to uh, bring good fortune. I mean, this whole thing is divorced from God. Once the gods intervened, life got very complicated and sometimes very miserable. If people needed help, they had to, as a blind person in the dark, as they thought, they would have to find out what pleased these gods. If the mortals really needed supernatural intervention to win a, a war, to survive a storm, they would attempt to find out through various means what pleases the gods. And their idea that these gods could be bribed. I could pay certain things here. I, could, I mean, this is the idea of the Catholic Church. Somehow paying these indulgences and all these things to the priest with help for eternity. How does God get a direct benefit from that? It helps the, helps the institution of the Roman Catholic uh, religion, but it doesn't help God. Roman mythology would have many drawbacks. But unfortunately, there is a parallel that exists today amongst professing Christianity countless modern Christians, many believers today, from their views of the true God, 
they think much like pagan mythologists did. You said, Pastor, how can you say that? The view of God is the product of their own experiences and the experiences they have recounted from the past. And rather than seeing God through the inerrant, inspired Word of God. There's a Christian mythology. A correct view of God is by seeing God's inerrant revelation of Himself in the Scriptures. How does God reveal Himself through this book? When something goes wrong in a Christian's life, there is a quickness, a, an aptness to believe or to try to fit your circumstances into the situation of how God must be construing the, the, the experience you're going through uh, so that it fits with my view of God. For, an, for, instance, for instance, someone might say, I don't know why God let me uh, have that flat tire and miss the sales presentations, but perhaps... It was his way of delaying me so that I, I would not have the car accident that would have occurred if I would have kept my original schedule. I'm very guilty of that. I've, I've thought about that many a times. Some might say, well, maybe God took my baby to heaven at childbirth because the child would grow up to be a wicked sinner. The fact that every calamity is a divinely appointed way for a believer to demonstrate God's unique excellence in some way And to manifest and express the glory of God, it doesn't enter our mind. The, the Christian's thinking is not, how does this circumstance bring glory to God? And I'll talk about that here in just a moment. There's a number of scriptures that everything we do is to bring glory to God. That seems like some mystical, uh, aloof principle or theological standpoint. But it doesn't come down into an everyday instance of how I live life. The reasoning is, is it leads to a shallow cause and effect relationship that revolves upon putting a good spin on our bad situations so that we can make sense of some calamity. The situation, as we would want to resolve it, somehow has a relationship back to myself for good rather than that calamity or that instance having an impact upon the glory of God. One is for me, one is for God. An illuminated believer, the satisfying element, the satisfaction in their life is not their understanding of God. Their satisfaction is knowing that they're they're giving God the glory. For an illuminated believer, the unifying and satisfying element in every circumstance is always the glory of God. Now I want to look at several passages of scriptures and I want to show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal life. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6. 
verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of the truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live is chastened and not killed, is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open to you, our heart is enlarged. He's talking about all of these things, verses, particularly verses 4 through 10. Would you look with me at chapter 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul's concern, now it's God's word, it's inspired, inerrant, the Holy Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul as the penman, the author is God. But in 2 Corinthians 11, 23-30, again, uh, a description of the events surrounding Paul's life. In verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, are they ministers of Christ, I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The Apostle Paul suffered much. But his concern and his view of the unseen, the spiritual world, it sustained him. Because it was not about him. As we go back to 2 Corinthians 4.16, our opening passage of Scripture. For which cause? What cause? That's verse 15, the glory of God. We faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For a light affliction, which is but for a moment. And he goes on here, but he starts, the demonstra- he starts this out. For which cause? All of these things that transpired here in 4 and 6 and 11. He says, we don't faint. I don't faint because of God's glory. And these are not, I mean, we don't get to see God's glory now. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And the things that we need to remember is the natural realm of life is profoundly affected by the supernatural realm. We are biblical Christians when we practice a supernatural worldview based upon correct doctrine. I'm not a Christian simply because I affirm right doctrine, but I'm living it and I'm founded upon right doctrine. I'm living. 
Paul saw the supernatural realm. He saw that which was unseen. Now, the natural realm definitely affects the supernatural. And we must live in both realms. If my spirit is not right with God, it affects me physically. It affects my mind. Both are real. And the Christian who lives their life only in the physical, much like the the pagan Roman uh, mythologists would do, well, maybe this happened, and I hope, you know, if we only live in the physical then what we're doing is we're as easily corrupted as the ancient Romans and we are living an incomplete Christianity. A sickly Christianity. We must above all see God and we must see Him above all. Now, Paul was physically bound. But he was not spiritually blind. He is not complaining He's not moaning and groaning his circumstances. I mean, in the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, we find a man who is possessing joy and contentment. He is. He's joyful and he's contented. He showed a selfless concern. He says, the day that, you know, the cares that are daily upon me, the cares of all the churches... He was concerned of the spiritual condition of those to whom he would minister. He could see things that made all the difference. It wasn't his, only his physical conditions. Physically blind. I mean, he had horrible eyesight. His body racked with pain, shackled in chains. And yet his eyes are open more than ever. I'd like you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He said, blessed be the God. Blessed with all spiritual blessings. He had his eyes upon the heavenlies. You could ask yourself, as you look here in the words of Ephesians, if I were in jail because of religious persecution, and and had the opportunity to write a letter. Could I write the same things that are written here to the people back at home? Or would I write in bitterness of soul? There's an amazing testimony of Paul's Christianity, which was so vibrant. After this opening doxology, words of praise... You know, the blessed be God and Father. Now the word doxology, again, is a word of praise. Praise Him from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If the praise of God is not the most dominant thought in my life, when I'm under pressure, what did Paul know that you and I don't know as believers? What, or rather whom, is Paul seeing that I'm blind to? The answer has to do, of course, with our view of God. Paul gives us a wonderful overview of God. The Word of God, here in Ephesians, and in other scriptures. But the lessons here in the first three chapters of Ephesians can absolutely be life-changing to you 
but it revolves around a correct view of God. Now, in the grand reality of God, His eternal existence, His absolute supremacy, essential facts of all the universe, the grand reality of God. He is first of all. If this truth is ever compromised, ever changed, forgotten, put off center from where it ought to belong, it changes everything. The reality is, is that he is the greatest and he is the first. He is supreme. And that is the, that is the truth of theology taught throughout the Bible. If you start in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord, thy God. Verse 3, thou shalt know other gods before me. Deuteronomy 4, 39, know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth. Beneath there is none else. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom, to whom what? Be glory forever. Amen. What about Revelation 1.8? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. The grand reality of God is that he is first. He is the first and he is the greatest. He is the cause Our problems, our temptations, our goals, our achievements. All of these ought to be filtered with God first. The satisfied and stable believer sees God first of all, supreme, and delights to have it so. But if I, through my temptations, goals, achievements of life, do not have God first, we become blind leading the blind. Jesus condemned the Pharisees there in Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone. They be blind, leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. There's a perpetuation of error in the Christian realm. This situation happened because of this for me. The satisfied and the stable believer sees God, first of all, supreme, and he delights in it. Now, as you think upon this, we cannot speak of God's supremacy without a discussion of his glory. Many believers use the phrase, the glory of God. But we don't understand what it means. Charles Ryrie defines the glory of God as the awesomeness, splendor, and importance of God seen in some way. Now, the glory of anything is the excellence which makes it first, unique. If you want to think about uniqueness, obviously there's Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, 29,028 feet above sea level. And uh, uh, there is no other peak that towers above it. I mean, it is unique in its excellence, its glory, if you would, its peerless height. It It doesn't share that glory with anyone else. It's supreme. It is first. And so as we think upon this, the glory of God is that unique excellence that makes him supreme, towering over everything. He is the source and sustainer of everything else. He is the creator. He created it. He sustains it. He's the creator God. Now, he's unique 
is that he alone has no beginning and no end. He's unique in his infinitude. What does that mean? He alone can't be measured. He's infinite. You can measure all the waters of the world. If you had opportunity to get every place where the water was, you could measure it. He's unblemished. There is no impurity. He is unique in that. He's infinite in his knowledge. He's infinite in his wisdom. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. I mean, we go on and on about all of these things. He's omnipresent. His infinite power is unique. And what God purposes to do, it always comes to pass. Every prophecy of the Messiah that would come absolutely came through through Jesus Christ. He accomplishes everything he sees fit to do. Every one of his glories, these unsurpassed attributes, towers infinitely above the landscape of the rest of creation, both celestial and terrestrial. He's not like Mount Everest in the fact that uh, Edmund Hillary became the first person to come to the top of the mountain there with his colleague. But God alone, in all of his positions, is Lord of all. It's unique, infinite attributes. And that is the glory of God. It is his unique boast. No one else. I mean, at the essence of God, the holiness. We tend to think of his holiness as merely God's separateness from evil. His perfect goodness, which establishes morality. And this is true. When you think about Isaiah chapter 6, saw the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, separate from all the creation. But I want to look at several things here on these following verses as we look about God and His uniqueness. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Which means He's entirely separate from all creation. Exodus 15, 11. Who is likened to thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now, we do spend time meditating on these. I mean, it it helps us to understand our finiteness and God's infinity, (laughs) infinitude, right? And, uh, but we cannot understand how it is that we are to glorify God. We merely have some truths of God, but how do I give God the glory that he rightfully deserves? The Bible writers everywhere admonish us to glorify God. Look with me at several passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5 tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's look at another one, John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples. How does my labors for the Lord, what does it do? It brings God glory. It doesn't bring glory back to myself. I'm not unique. 
but he is. Romans 15, 6. As we look upon this truth here, right? In Romans 15, 6, uh, we have what it, here that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mouth, one mind, glorify God. The Bible is telling us over and over. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6.20. 1 And as I really reflect upon these truths and the study of this, number one, I'm not doing anything for myself. Which is, it is liberating. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you are bought with a price, therefore, what? Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 10.31, very famous passage on the glory of God. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to what? The glory of God. The Bible is telling us, God is telling us, He says, listen this. The uniqueness of God as first is the most important consideration of all existence. Do all to the glory of God. How does that affect you in your daily living? How does that affect you at your workplace? How does that change your relationships with others? How you interact with others? Because everything you do, how is it going to make people think of God as first? You cannot understand God or His ways unless you understand what His glory is and why it's important. Thinking about this. Once Bible teacher has put it this way, God does everything for His glory. This is the basic axiom of hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics is proper interpretation of scriptures. And um, it's an important key to understanding God's ways and interpreting His word. God's grace, God's government, God's greatness. These are other keys of understanding which are wonderful to know. These are understanding God's ways with men. But these keys only unlock certain doors. John Phillips said, God's glory is the master key that unlocks all doors. And as we really reflect on all of this, one Bible teacher, as I said, there are several times as we look at Ephesians, excuse me, Paul enunciates that God's overarching purpose for his redemptive acts are his glory. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And before this, talking about God's uh, desire for us, he's got a plan for our life plan for us to be adopted to the praise of the glory of his grace where he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Oftentimes used by Calvinists to speak uh, of God choosing us, but that's not the case here. 
He's speaking to believers, not unbelievers. Verses 7 through 12, as we look at this, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. There's a faith that I put in Christ, but that we should be at salvation, that we should be to the praise of His glory. It is a dominating truth. It is the exclusive truth which all of our life is to be characterized by. All of our life is to be principled upon. Verses 13 and 14. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believe. Again, free will to believe. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of His what? Glory. And then, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, the first three chapters, Unto Him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You know what this does? It tells us that here within this church, as we're serving and we're honoring the Lord, not one time is it about me or about you. How good, great I am, or how good or great you are. That is not the bearing here. It is that God is first. So you see, the glory of God is not something that we can so quickly uh, dismiss. Oh yeah, we think, well, everything's supposed to be to God's glory. No, it's not just a flippant discussion. It's not just a, uh, uh, one of those nice little Bible truths. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that is absolutely deep, deep theology there. But we, in our minds, because we get so accustomed to church, we think we take these terminologies and l- treat them so lightly, and yet it doesn't impact me daily. It doesn't impact my relationship, my interactions, my, uh, my devotion to God. That He is first. He's unique. What part does a concern for the glory of God have in your daily choices? I mean, it's the most fundamental question in the Christian life. And your answer is either between being a spiritual believer or spiritual mediocrity. Being a person filled with the joy and peace or filled with limping along in the Christian life and hoping. You know what? Before the fall, every part of God's creation pointed to His unique excellence. The celestial bodies, the stars, the heavens... They showed of God's power and His skill, unmatched. I mean, David exclaims in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Again, we see the glory of God that He is first. Romans 1, they deny God. They deny His glory, and they go unto themselves, and God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Because God has first His uniqueness, His excellence, His firstness, His godness. I mean, He's God. And you and I, as believers, have been created to bear witness of His unique excellence. We were also created with the qualities of being created in His image. God is in order above all celestial bodies, all the flora and the fauna of the earth. As you think about pantheism, where they're trying to put God in the objects of the world, how blasphemous. 
you and I, created in the image of God, have a unique opportunity of fellowship with He who is uniquely excellent. Before the fall of man, before angels fell, they would all willfully, willingly, and joyfully that God was first and above all. It was the highest delight of Adam and Eve to turn their faces to God. Entirely dependent upon Him. Unrestrained in their access to Him. Unrestrained in their praises of Him. If you look in the end of the Bible, in Revelation, as the angels in heaven sing the heavenly chorus, one day throwing our crowns, whatever we may gain, in our service for God, throwing those crowns at the feet of Christ, because He is first. Adam knew that God was the source, sustainer of his existence. In Deuteronomy 4.39, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. When Adam fell, man's nature was corrupted. It went from a God-first mentality to a me-first. We have a daughter, my wife and I. And uh, you know what? As, we've, as she gets older, we have to continually teach her, not about being, we never had to teach her how to be selfish. We did not have to. That's natural. That's the Adamic nature, right, from Adam. But we do, with our daughter, have to teach her to be selfless, how to share. Adam would glory in himself. And how often in churches do pastors and people Serving in the church, glory in themselves. Seeing themselves as supreme. And we steal the glory of God and we persist in our mediocre Christianity. You know what this is? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We fell short of the purpose of reflecting and enjoying God's unique existence, His unique excellence, His glory. And this might be, it's obviously not one of the lightest of sermons and the most joyful, uh, maybe very heavy, but unfortunately in modern Christianity, there's such a malnourishment of understanding basic biblical truths. Edmund Hillary had to stop at nine camps to rest and refresh himself as he made his way up Mount Everest. His fatiguing journey started on March 10, 1953, a 188-mile hike from Kathmandu to the base camp at 17,900 feet. His fellow climber, Tenzing Norgay, they were rewarded on May 29th, two months later, with a view from the top of the world. And you know what, my friend? As we live our lives with the thinking of how can God be made to be seen first in my life by my actions. It's richly rewarding as Edmund Hillary and Tanzing 
Norgay would go to the top. Because we would be compensated by the view of the heavenlies. A view that, despite all that Paul would suffer, would thrill his soul. It sustained him. It sustained uh, believers through the centuries. And as we think upon this, I'm going to finish up here for this evening, but we have learned that God is glorified when he is seen as supreme first, in his firstness, if you would. And how does this translate into our daily lives in a practice of letting God be first? Right? Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Again, his firstness. We were created for the pleasure of God. How do my actions in a particular way lead me to thinking how can God be seen as first? Do all, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31. I'll end there this evening. And then come to the time of invitation. I really want to, you know, as I reflect upon this, I'm preaching to myself in light of several things that have happened in the recent days. But whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do I get to work in my life? How do I interact with my wife, interact with my daughter, interact with church people, interact with society and culture and and the lost and saved? How do I do all of that and yet still have the predominant, not the predominant, because then there's alternatives. How do I have the mindset of how can my actions, thoughts, reactions bring God, make God first and let him be seen as first? The challenge is we have become a people that have adopted an Adamic mindset of me first. And it is grieving to God. And my friend, as you reflect upon God and his glory, how are your thoughts, your actions, reactions, all of those things, how is it going to make people to see God as uniquely excellent? What a challenging question. Difficult. But my friend, I trust that you would just simply put a faith in God. Number one, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may you trust him tonight. And Christian, I've got to humble myself and say, God, forgive me for not understanding the glory of God. And number two, not living in light of the glory of God. It's not about me. It's all about you. Not just the tenets of God, but the glory of God, which is the key to understanding God, that he is first. Uniquely excellent. And as we understand that, we can begin to grow and bear fruit for eternity. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, I trust you do business with God as we come to the time of invitation.